Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, your guide to the fundamentals of better deer hunting. And now, your host, Tony Peterson. Hey everyone, welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. I'm your host, Tony Peterson, and today's episode is all about blood trailing and the mistakes we all make. Back when I was elk hunting in September, my hunting partner hit a monster mule deer too high. He was distraught. He told me quite a few times how he never makes bad shots. And to be fair, he's like one of the best shots I know by far. And he honestly doesn't screw up very often when he draws that bow back to his face. But it happens. And it might be something between your ears or it might have been something, I don't know, that happened with your rig. But bad shots do happen. Good shots happen too. And how you follow up on all of them, you know, that's probably a big enough topic to cover 10 of these episodes, but I'm only going to give you two. I do think this is probably more important than almost any other theme I could hit on with this podcast. So I hope you listen closely and I hope you learn something from it. You know how when you go out like with old friends, like maybe high school friends or some buddies from college, and they tell a story about how you did something really stupid or crazy, and when they tell it, you think to yourself, that's that's not how that happened at all. You remember it totally different. If you ever take a criminal justice course at a college that dives into the topic of eyewitness accounts, you learn pretty quickly that we are really bad at witnessing events and then remembering them as they actually happen. It's hard to fathom, too, because we all trust our memories a lot. But this is the truth. You learn this in life in many ways, especially if you marry a woman who has a memory like a steel trap, and you have a memory like one of those, I don't know, sand sifter beach toys you give two-year-olds to play with at the beach. If you want a totally random example that has nothing to do with my everyday grind-your-soul-into-the-ground life. Anyway, 
we just generally suck at remembering things correctly. And what does this have to do with deer hunting? Well, we all pretty much kind of suck at remembering how we shot a deer or how we shoot our deer. You know, the adrenaline kicks in, your nerves are frayed, and we are just pure reptile brain a lot of times when we try to shoot a whitetail. That means we don't really interpret the events as they actually happened, and we have to fill in the blanks. And new hunters often fill in the blanks to their benefit. Like instead of a low brisket style hit, they might decide that they must have hit the hard or low lungs. Uh, hunters with tons of experience, they kind of often go the other way. This is, I think, due to being on surprising and often disappointing blood trails. Those hunters, those experienced hunters, they often make a pretty decent shot and they get overly cautious because they've seen what can go wrong and they don't want to make any mistakes to make it go even more wrong. You can count me in that camp. I second guess myself a lot and I'm always learning that what I see during a shot and what I remember are often at odds with what actually happened. Every whitetail outfitter out there will tell you this is damn near the rule and not an exception to it. Acknowledging this reality, I think it's real important. We all have to know and believe that we get details wrong when we shoot a deer, because we do. When I started filming hunts, this hit me right in the face like one of those flying Asian carp that keeps marching their way up river to places once devoid of them. Now, filming hunting mostly sucks. And I know that's a first world problem to bitch about, but I hate having someone in a tree who ultimately has the thumbs up or thumbs down on, you know, whether I can shoot or not. I hate it for other reasons too, but what I like it for is that it shows me how wrong I can be. I've shot quite a few critters on film over the years, and most of them have shown me that in some way, my memory had betrayed me. It might be, I don't know how much a buck dropped or the actual body position of an antelope, or something else. But it's pretty much a guarantee that what I remembered isn't exactly what happened. This is the first point I want you to really consider, because it feeds a bigger blood trailing strategy. But, and there's always a but, it's also really important to take note of your initial impression when you shoot. Like, what did your instincts say in the moment? Did you believe the angle was really good and that the point of impact was close to where you intended? Good. That's good. Or did you have a feeling that something went a little awry? Maybe the hit was a bit farther back than you like, or maybe the deer moved right before the shot and took your slight quartering away angle and made it more severe. Okay, remember that. Also try really hard to remember right where your deer was standing and right where it ran. What did it do when you shot? Did it mule kick? Did it hunch up? Did it take off like a rocket? And when it ran, was it you know at the edge of the ridge? Or maybe did it just step over a log in the trail? Did it bound off between two birch trees? Or maybe splash its way through a low spot in the swamp next to an island of willows? All of that stuff matters a lot. Initial reactions, initial impressions, they are important. Because they are usually somewhat right. What happens, though, is that once we settle down and start replaying things in our heads, we start to rewrite the script. One of my favorite songs in the world to listen to and play on guitar is Schism from Tool. And in it, the good reverend sings, I've done the math enough to know the dangers of our second guessing. 
I think about that a lot and I'm reminded of it a lot when I shoot deer. The initial impression is important, but it's kind of like a sandcastle. As soon as you build it, the wind comes along and starts whisking away some grains of sand here and there. And then the waves start lapping at its foundation. Soon the whole thing looks different from when you built it. And what I'm saying is, take note of what you believe happened as soon as it happened. Your first impressions. You will reference these often. You will also use this to counterweight what happens next, which is that it's time to gather some evidence. Now, this is the first part that gets a little tricky. After you shoot a deer, how long should you wait to get down and look for your arrow or look for blood at or near the impact site? To me, this depends on one thing. What are the odds I'll spook the wounded deer? If it's dead calm and the cover is thick, or basically a situation where I don't know how far the wounded deer went, I'm going to sit up in that stand for a while, maybe an hour, maybe more. If there is a 30 mile per hour wind and I watch the deer drop down into a valley and out of sight, I know the odds of me getting down and spooking it are pretty low. The very first consideration always is to not spook a deer when you don't have to. This is probably a horrible comparison, but they always say that if you're abducted, don't let them take you to a second location because if they do, it's lights out for you. When it comes to wounded deer, you do not want to push them to a second location. You want them to tip over or bed down in a spot of their choice and then be there expired when you do slip into blood trail them. The deer that beds down and gets pushed to a new spot is a deer that you are far, far less likely to recover. Sometimes we make that mistake by just getting down from our stand and looking for our arrows or looking for blood at the impact site. If you can get down safely and start looking, you should, but only, only for the first bit of evidence. Finding your arrow is huge, and this is where lighted knocks are a really great option. Hell, they're a great option for seeing what happened throughout your shot and immediately following it. An arrow that passes through and buries in the ground with a glowing knock is pretty easy to find. An arrow that buries into the deer and then leaves the scene with them is pretty easy to see with a lighted knock. But even if you don't use lighted knocks, you should still try really hard to find your arrow. I see people make this mistake a lot, and it drives me crazy. Mostly because it's a testament to how impatient a lot of people are on blood trails. This, by the way, is something that everyone needs to understand. Patience not only kills big bucks, but it's really your best friend on a blood trail. It is. Too often, we default to looking for a whole dead deer when we should be looking for the tiniest amount of evidence that will tell us not only what kind of hit we are dealing with, but what direction our wounded deer really went. Remember that, please. So, you sneak down as quiet as a mouse pissing on a cotton ball or I don't know, something like that. And you walk over to the impact site. Unless the ground is rock hard, I tend to almost always look for running tracks. Even little deer move some dirt and leaves when they run, especially if they go from standing still to full on get the hell out of here mode. These scarred up tracks almost always kick off a blood trail. But even if they don't, your job is to find the arrow if it's there. Your arrow and what will be on it are crucial to developing a high-odds blood trailing plan. To find it, 
you have to find exactly where the deer was standing when you shot and then work it beyond that point. I know that's simple, but it's true. Sometimes the arrow is right there. Sometimes it's 20 yards farther downhill, buried in a patch of thorns or nettles. Occasionally, it skips off in a random direction. The point here, my friends, is that people often give up way too quickly on finding their arrow. This is a bad idea. Do your best. Give it some time. And understand that often the arrow is within maybe 20 or 30 yards of the impact site, but usually, or at least sometimes, isn't overly visible. Now, if you do find your arrow, pay attention. Is it stuck six inches in the dirt or is it laying on the ground? Is it broken? Is it covered in dark red blood or little pieces of meat and fat? Is it covered in the deer's partially digested breakfast? Are your broadhead blades still intact or are they busted up like you hit bone? This is something I say to myself all the time and will circle us back around to the beginning of this podcast. The evidence doesn't lie, even if our memory does. The evidence on your arrow just doesn't lie. If you believe you double-lunged your buck, but the arrow is covered in gut material, then you're just wrong. Something happened that you don't remember, and it doesn't matter because the arrow and its evidence aren't lying. This initial finding is crucial for planning out the rest of your trailing efforts. Trust me when I say, trust the evidence. Now, you might be thinking, that's really great advice, Tony, but I shoot my deer with a muzzleloader or maybe a 270. There's no arrows involved, thank you very much. Well, you're welcome. And in the case of shooting a deer with just about anything shy of a nuke, the impact site is muy importante. Is there blood right there? That's usually a good sign. Instant blood or blood within a few feet of the impact site always makes me feel a little better. It's not a guarantee that immediate recovery is imminent, but that at the very least, you hit something that is carrying blood. I like that. Is that blood splattered on the tree right by the impact site or just missed it on a few leaves? Is it like gouts of blood that almost look like an impressionist painting of rose petals? Or is it just a few random drops stippled across the maple leaves? Can you glass down the trail and pick up more blood pretty quickly or not? What's the quantity like? What's the quality like too? Is it frothy pinkish lung blood or dark red blood that might indicate a liver hit or possibly a heart or artery hit? Is it just your run-of-the-mill looking blood in not so great quantities that could indicate any number of different hits? Is there hair there? What color is it? Is it short and brown or is it long and white? Does the hair indicate that you might have hit lower than you thought? What does the evidence tell you? And each piece of evidence that you find, really your job is just to filter a few things. The first is to compare it to your initial impression right after the shot. The next is to use it with whatever other evidence you've got to make a better and better plan. Did you think you smoked your buck and that he'd be dead in 75 yards only to find some bit of evidence on the arrow of the impact site that makes you think he might be a lot farther away? Trust the evidence. The biggest mistake I see a lot of hunters make is that they convince themselves that they should take off on the blood trail too early and that they'll recover their deer in no time due to the fact that they think they made a good enough shot. The other mistake they make at this point is they text three of their buddies and they say it's time to round up the posse and start blood trailing together. I highly, highly advise against this at the onset of any questionable blood trail. The reason why is that the more people you get involved, the faster you'll go because the most impatient person in the group will often set the pace. 
This happens with large groups of pheasant hunters too, and it drives me crazy. It's one of the reasons why I don't hunt in large groups. Everyone wants to be the first one to shoot the rooster or find the next drop of blood, but both activities should be closer to a crawl than a sprint. I'd much, much rather trail solo or with one other person who knows what he's doing than will follow me and allow me to set the pace because it's my blood trail. And I can't stress this enough. If you have to grid search later, then all the help you can get is good. But for now, right at the onset of a blood trail, which you don't know how it's going to end, keeping it small and keeping it slow is the best plan. And before you get too far down that trail, decide what an appropriate amount of time is to wait. Now, there are some general rules about this stuff, but I'm not going to tell you because they don't matter to me a whole lot. A well-hit double lung or heart shot deer, he isn't going to lay out there long before I go get it. Anything else is going to get a buffer of at least a couple of hours, maybe quite a bit longer. If I know I'm dealing with a liver or a gut hit, I'm going to give it probably six to eight hours. Now I know you're thinking, what if it's hot? What if I got a ton of coyotes in my area? This is another time when patience and caution are important. We way overstate the likelihood of losing our meat to heat, especially overnight when it comes to whitetails. I've killed a boatload of September deer, and I've never lost any to heat spoilage. Overnights in September are cool enough in general to make it less of an issue than we often think. Now, I'm not talking Florida or Louisiana deer here, though. I get it. Your local conditions will vary, and if it's not supposed to get below 75 degrees tonight, you have got to consider that. You have to filter that info through your plan and decide that maybe eight hours is just too much time in that heat, but four is doable. You don't want to be cavalier here. You want to be as cautious as you can while still being smart about it. And as far as the song dogs go coming in and munching up your deer, this is another danger that we often overstate. Now, I've heard horror stories out of places like Kansas where a pack of coyotes will clean up a whole deer in a matter of minutes. If you know that's a real possibility in your area, you have to factor that in and play those odds just like you would with heat. You can't control the coyotes or the weather, but you can control it if you talk yourself into going after a gut shot buck an hour after you hit him just because there is a possibility coyotes will find him. Got to be real honest with yourself after looking at the initial evidence and then factoring in the likelihood of meat loss for whatever reason. This is a balance that's hard to find, even if you have a ton of experience. Sometimes you'll get it wrong, but the goal is to get it wrong as rarely as possible. Does this seem like a lot? It is. Our job once we shoot is to do our best to find our deer and not lose an ounce of venison. It's a heavy lift sometimes. But just like when you're facing a torturous pack out of a bull elk, you bought the ticket, so you better get ready to take the ride. Now next week, I'm going to talk about what to do during a blood trail and how to ensure that with every step you take, you're getting closer to your deer and not risking losing it. That's it for this week, my friends. I'm Tony Peterson, and this has been the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. As always, thank you so much for your support. I can't tell you how much it means to me. It's really great. If you want more of a whitetail fix this time of year, you can't get enough of it, head on over to the Meat Eater YouTube channel. You can check out Mark's new show, Deer Country. 
You can also head over to our Wired to Hunt YouTube channel, and we've got a boatload of how-to videos on there. Or you can head on over to themediator.com slash wired, and you're going to read all kinds of whitetail-related articles written by myself and Mark and a whole slew of whitetail killers. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.